The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Y'all think it's warm in here? That first summer I was in Connecticut, they didn't have windy units in there. It started getting about 85, 90 degrees in that old building. I thought that was downright prehistoric. But you can do it. You can contract. I got an email from Jim Myers. He just got back from a place down on the Crimea, and he said it was really hot, and they didn't have air conditioning, and they had about 70 campus crusade staff that would go for two or three hours inside this hot classroom. And so just think about all those Christians for all those years who didn't have air conditioning, and they still took in the Word and grew to spiritual maturity. Okay, a couple of announcements. The important new announcement, and we will have more details coming up, is that we're tentatively planning an Israel trip next summer. Uh, Dr. Wayne House, Tommy Ice, and I will lead the tour. We will go to Israel and Jordan. The Jordan will probably be a three-day extension. We'll leave approximately June 15th. It will be a 12- to uh, 15-day trip. And uh, Wayne will put things together and give us a brochure. Wayne House leads about five or six of these every year. Uh, I've known Wayne for 20 years. He was a professor of mine at, at uh, Dallas. And in fact, I still remember the day he was moving into his office. I, was not, I, don't, I wasn't even in Dallas yet. I think I was down here, and Tommy called me all excited because he had spent an hour or two with Wayne in his office and said, he's, got, he's a traditional dispensationalist. He's got great theology. You're just going to love him. And uh, so Wayne and I have uh, had a good ministry together, and I got him involved in WHW about four years ago. He is probably the expert in our camp on the issues related to women pastors and role of women in ministry, and he's debated all the liberal feminist evangelicals, and he's also a lawyer, and he's quite well-educated. He goes to Israel quite a bit. He's written a couple of books just on uh, tours in Israel, and some of those who were here who were at the Conservative Theological Society meeting this last week got to meet him and, and get to know him a little bit. And we're planning a, a trip, so we'll have more details. In fact, he's going to be in Houston in September. He's come to speak at uh, Reverend Rose's church. And while he's here, we're going to try to get him over here and at least do a commercial for the uh, Israel trip. But we'll have brochures in a couple of two to three weeks, I think. And so, but you can start planning now. The cost on uh, trips of this type usually run around $2,800 per person plus or minus a couple of hundred, and that covers almost everything except your own spending money, and that usually covers two meals a day and let everybody pick up whatever they want to for lunch. So you can plan on, on that. More information to come. Also, don't forget this Saturday we will be having a walkthrough on the property on the Beltway, and that will be open from 12 noon until 2 p.m., 
And I was just informed that the, the Orthodox Church there has something going on at uh, a little bit later that afternoon. So it, we have to be out of there exactly at 2 p.m. Now, we, were, we have been announcing a congregational uh, meeting concerning this for this Sunday night, but we didn't finish all of our negotiations with the uh, management company until a couple of nights ago. So because we haven't had time to work all the figures up and everything, we're going to postpone the congregational meeting two weeks to August the 21st so that we have time to finish putting all of the details together and be able to bring that before the congregation. Okay, I think that's pretty much it. Ulan had a hearing last week. Things do not look good. I'm working with several different groups trying to figure out where, what the next step is, but he is still in Berlin. Uh, as his lawyer said, there's less than a 0.5% uh, chance that he would be granted uh, asylum there in Europe. So we need to continue to pray for him and his wife and for their future. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We need to make sure we're ready to study the Word and be refreshed by the teaching of God's Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. And then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that we have you to come to, that you have revealed yourself to us, you have given us your word, and that word has been preserved free from error down through the centuries so that we can have a sure and certain knowledge about you, about who and what we are and how we've been created in your image and how we are designed to glorify you. We thank you for the knowledge your scripture gives us of our salvation and the unique spiritual life that we have in this church age. Now, Father, as we study through Hebrews, we pray that you would challenge us with what we are studying, that we can come to understand the seriousness of the doctrines that are covered here and how it should affect the everyday decisions that we make as we go through our lives. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and the Holy Spirit would illuminate our thinking that we may have a clear understanding. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, and this begins the first of five passages in Hebrews, and they get successively longer. These five passages are generally referred to as warning passages. They come at the end of periods of lengthy sections in the book that are actually expositions or developments of doctrine and developments of Old Testament passages out from the ritual practices of the Old Testament, and each one of these sections are really drive to a certain application. And it's important for us to understand both of these kinds of sections. As I said in the introduction, I believe that the writer wrote this or spoke this initially, that it was a sermon. It was a five-point sermon, and it drives to a conclusion of how important and crucial our Christian life is and how, how crucial it is that we continue to grow and advance and not give up along the way. And there's a real tendency in the lives of people to, to 
slip away and to drift away from doctrine. You'll see them get on board for a while and they get excited. And I've seen this so many years. People come to church and they start listening to Bible teaching and they say, I've never heard the Bible taught like that before. And five months, six months, a year, two years later, they disappear and they end up in some church that's all emotion or all experience. And you wonder what happened. And they, they got enough. They learned enough. And, and it's, you never learn enough after all these years. There are more, so many more riches in the Word of God and understanding of what goes on in the spiritual life that challenges us that there's no reason to ever, ever give up. So we come to this first warning passage, and that is the first four verses of chapter 2. And there we go. Verse 1 reads, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. This introduces the warning theme to these four verses. There is a challenge to pay close attention to what we have been taught, what we have heard, lest or so that we may not end up facing certain negative consequences. So we need to take some time to understand the context as we get into this verse. It's so important to do three things when you're studying the Word. Well, we, we don't have something hooked up. His context is number one, and in, we look at the context because that puts it in perspective. We don't want to uh, we don't want to lose sight of what is going on in the text. We don't want to lose the forest for the trees. And so, the first word in this verse in the Greek is actually the phrase dia tuta, which is a preposition dia, which means or dia, which means because when it's with the accusative, and the word tuta is a pronoun indicating this, because of this literally, or for this reason. And so we always have to look at these statements to find out why they're there. It's not really therefore. He is, he is saying something a little more precise than therefore. He is saying for this reason. And so when we see that, we need to ask the question, for what reason? And he's drawing a conclusion from everything that's been said in the prior chapter, especially from verses 5 on. So we have to see what that reason is. And so this will give us a cause to go back and review and summarize the thrust of what this writer is saying in the first chapter. And the focus on the first chapter is on who Jesus Christ is. And that takes us right back to the first couple of verses. And I pointed out as we went through that, that the main idea is that God has spoken today by means of His Son. In the past, He spoke by means of prophets, and He spoke to the fathers, that is, to Israel, and he spoke in a variety of ways and a variety of forms. But in these last days, which is the church age, he's spoken by means of What's so important about that? And that's what he's answering in the rest of the chapter. He's focusing on the priority and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he'll draw a conclusion from that. So first thing that we saw was an emphasis on his sonship in terms of his deity. There are, as I pointed out, six different sonships of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the two crucial ones that are used in this 
chapter are his, the title Son of God, although it's not used, it's referred to, which emphasizes his deity. And the second is that he is the Son of David, which comes out of his humanity and specifically ties Jesus' present role at the right hand of God the Father and to his future role when he will come as the messianic Son of David, who will establish his kingdom to rule and reign on the earth. So in terms of his sonship, what we have seen is that the title itself, Son of God, indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ is full deity. He is undiminished deity, and he has all of the attributes of the Lord Jesus, uh, of God the Father. All of the attributes of God the Father. He is not uh, subordinate to God the Father in his essence, but he is equal in his essence. And Son of God emphasizes that. The second thing that we see is that he is identified as the immediate creator of all things. God the Father is the architect, but it's God the Son who was the contractor on the job, the building supervisor who saw that everything was accomplished. He is the one through whom God the Father created all things. Hebrews 1.2 says that he was the one through whom he made the ages. Third thing we saw related to his deity as the Son of God is that he has, the writer states that he has the exact same essence as the Father, the same essence as the Father. He is said to be the flashing forth of his deity, the exact representation of his nature. And this is in Hebrews 1.3. The fourth thing that we see is that he is seen as the perfect one who reveals the Father. God has now spoken through the Son. The Son is the expression of the Father, and it is through the Son that we come to know who the Father is. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3 emphasizes the fact that He has spoken to us in these last days by means of His Son. Fifth thing we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who sustains the universe. This is the function of His deity. He continues to sustain the universe Hebrews 1.3 says that he upholds all things by the word of his power. And in 6, we see that in this passage that he is the eternal, omnipotent one who made the universe and will outlast the universe. And that was indicated by the quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 28, given in verses 10 through 12 of chapter 1. All of that emphasizes the sonship of his deity. I'm getting a little bit of a feedback, Jack, a little ringing every now and then. Okay, then we have the concept of his Davidic sonship, his messianic sonship. This is an outgrowth of Psalm 2-7, as we saw when we went through here. And we see about uh, seven things related to his Davidic sonship, which emphasizes his humanity. First of all, he is the God-man Savior who made purification or cleansing for sin. The God-man Savior, in his humanity, he is our substitute. And this is emphasized in Hebrews 1.4. Second, at his ascension, his humanity is promoted over the angels. So he is elevated through the ascension over the angels. In his deity, he was always over the angels. But in his humanity, he is now in authority over the angels. There is a human being at the right hand of God the Father who is at the control helm of the universe and rules over the angels. Hebrews 1, 3 through 4. 
Third, we've seen that in his humanity, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father in order to wait for the giving of the kingdom. As Psalm 2, 8 indicates, he is waiting to be given the kingdoms as an inheritance. And he is asking for that. Hebrews 1, 3 with Psalm 2, 8. Fourth thing we see is the angels worship him. This indicates that in his person he is elevated over the angels and is worthy of their worship. Only deity is worthy of worship. You never have any creature uh, worshipped. So he is elevated over the angels, and this is indicated in Hebrews 1, verse 6. The fifth thing we saw is that he's the creator of the angels, and they are designed to serve him. They are designated as angelos, which is a term for messengers, and they are liturgos, they are ministers or servants. Hebrews 1, verse 7. Sixth thing we see is that he is designated the future king, the Davidic king, who will establish and rule the kingdom for Israel in the uh, millennial kingdom and fulfillment of all the promises given in the Davidic covenant. That's Hebrews 1.8. So he fulfills the promises of the Davidic covenant. And then seventh, we're told that these angels that he's created, that he is superior to, the angels that worship him, are then commissioned in verse 13, or verse 14, they're commissioned to serve church-age believers, those who are said to be uh, those who will inherit salvation. And so we are those who are in training to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. And so these angels are dispatched and commissioned to serve us, to watch us, and this is the basis for the doctrine of guardian angels for believers. What the writer is saying is, then, is sense. For this reason, for the whole body of information we've just gone through in terms of those 14 verses, for this reason, since Jesus is the expression and the ultimate revelation of God, since Jesus is fully God, since Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants, since Jesus is superior to the angels and worshipped by the angels, and since we will share His rule and reign and joy as His companions, and since He will in the future destroy all the nations and establish His rule, in light of all of this, we must do something. That's the thrust of this. We're going to draw this conclusion from everything said, and there is a mandate at the beginning of verse 1. And when he says this, he says, Therefore we must, and the we there refers to all believers and includes the writer as well as his initial audience, and by virtue of application, it includes us. There is an obligation that is part of the package of salvation. It's not an obligation to be, that, that we must fulfill to be saved or to keep salvation, but it is an obligation that if we're going to benefit from all that God has given us, then there are certain things that follow from that. It's not just an opportunity, well, I'm saved and so I can live any way I want to and do whatever I want to, and I'm just glad I'm not going to go to the lake of fire, but that God has done so many things for us that there is such an incredible transformation that has taken place at salvation. And He has given us the 40 things that are our realities in terms of positional truth. And these provide the potentials for living the Christian life and preparing us for our future ministry with Him 
there is a mandate inherent in that. So the therefore points to that future mandate. The verb that's used here is the Greek word dei, D-E-I. It's a present active indicative. It's not an imperative, but there's an imperatival sense in the very meaning of the word. This is an obligation term. There is something inherent in this. The word dei means it's necessary, something that one must do, one has to do, or something that is inevitable in the nature of things. In other words, if you really understand the dynamics of salvation, if you understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross as he paid the penalty for our sins, as he defeated Satan and all of his strategies to rule the world and become a god on his own, if you understand what transpired in the ascension and session, then you must see that this will change the way you live. See, the problem with a shallow, superficial gospel is that people don't understand why it radically transforms the present tense life of the believer in the church age. And that's what these warning passages focus on. So this verb refers to what must be done on the basis of our duty. There is an obligation as believers. It's what is prescribed by law, Mosaic law, but what is prescribed by the mandates of the New Testament, all the various imperatives that we have in the New Testament define the boundaries of the Christian life. And that's the obligation. And and I remember years ago getting in an argument with somebody, and they said, there's no obligations in the Christian life. You don't have to do anything. Well, in a sense, you don't. You're still going to be saved. But if you're going to enjoy the blessings and privileges of salvation, if you're going to advance and grow to spiritual maturity and enjoy the happiness and peace that the Lord Jesus Christ promised us, then that means we're just going to have to uh, follow the mandates of Scripture. It's as if you were given a car, and perhaps uh, you're given, let's just uh, say that you were given a a Jaguar SR12, and you have all the privileges, you have the uh, title to it, it's yours, you own it. And let's say you drive it for 90,000 miles and you don't change the oil in it and you don't check the tire pressure and all of a sudden one day you go out and turn it on, nothing happens. Well, see, that car is still yours. It's not doing you a bit of good. You had an obligation with the gift to take care of it and to maintain it and to do all the things that, that go along with car maintenance. And since you failed to do that, it's... No good, but it's still yours. It's parked out there in the driveway up on blocks, and you can look at it and enjoy it, but it's not going to do you any good. And that's how the Christian life is for many, many believers. It just doesn't do them a bit of good because they don't, they never look at the owner's manual. They never figure out what they need to do to maintain it. They never learn anything about 1 John 1, 9 and how to get back in fellowship. They never learn the dynamics of the Christian life. As far as they're concerned, the Christian life is nothing more than a series of ethical commands, and it's not any different from what the unbeliever can do. So we have to understand the dynamics of the Christian life in order to go forward. This is the mandate. So the writer says, therefore, in light of all these things that Jesus has done for us, in light of his superiority to everything in the universe, including the angels, we must do certain things. Now, what he says next is, in translation in the New King James, is we must give more earnest heed. Now, that sort of loses its punch when you look at the Greek. 
There is the word more in the English, which is a comparative. And actually, in the, in the English, it's a comparative. In the Greek, it's a comparative. But in Greek, you have a, the comparative is sometimes used for the superlative. Instead, more is the comparative. That's comparing two things. Most is the superlative. It takes it to the highest level of intensity. And that's what we have here. The adverb is parisos. And it has the idea of something that is over and above. It is going to the fullest uh, extent of something. It's something that goes, uh, gives 150% instead of 100%. And one of the things that I've often said about my ministry is I would rather have 30 or 40 or 50 believers who are sold out to pursuing the Christian life than to have a church of three or 400 or three or 4,000 where you only had 30 or 40 people who wanted to go somewhere because those other people who don't want to go anywhere are just going to drag everybody else down. We need to have people who have a goal of excellence in the Christian life, who want to fully understand the Bible, who want to make it a part of their thinking so that they can press on to be a part of this cadre that will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is driving at. The parisos adverb indicates exceedingly and abundantly beyond all measure. Those of you who... uh, who believe in excellence and always want to go the extra mile, this is the verse that is to challenge you. We are to pay the closest attention is the idea. That's the idea in earnest heed is really attention, to pay attention, to focus on uh, something. This is our next word. It's the uh, verb pros echo in the Greek. It's a present active infinitive, and it means to apply oneself to something. And with the uh, uh, comparative use for the superlative there, it's to apply oneself to something to the highest degree. It means to pay attention or to occupy yourself with something. So what the writer is saying here is, therefore, in light of everything that we've seen the Lord Jesus Christ do because of who He is, what He is, and where He's headed... If we are going to be those companions, then we must give ourselves to the closest possible attention to the the most dedicated occupation with the Lord and with the Word of God possible. This isn't something you just do on Sunday. This isn't something you do Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday. It's something that is the heartbeat of your life every single day. You may only have time to listen to a tape, uh, 20 or 30, Uh, 20 minutes or so a day, but you're going to get doctrine in. You're going to make that the first thing you do in the morning so that it orients your thinking throughout the day. You start the day off in fellowship. You remind yourself of a few promises, but the focus of your day and of your life is living today in light of eternity. And that's the challenge for the whole book of Hebrews. So the verbiage here is as strong as and dynamic and powerful as it can be expressed. He is almost pounding his pulpit to tell people, you have to make doctrine the highest priority of your life. Nothing else will do. You have to give it the closest attention, and you have to concentrate day in and day out because it doesn't take much for you to lose it and start slipping away. In fact, one of the things or meanings of this word pros echo is that it's used in nautical terminology 
for holding a ship on course or to firmly anchor a ship to the ocean floor. So it has that concept of being tied down to something or being right on target all the time. So if we're going to get a corrected translation of this verse, it would read, It is necessary for us to pay the closest attention to the Word or to be the most occupied with the Word. Or if we wanted to uh, paraphrase it in terms of the nautical terminology, we are to be firmly anchored in the message of what we have been taught. Now, how do you do that? How do you anchor yourself in the message? Well, that's more than just coming to class and listening. It's more than just taking notes. It's more than just having a doctrinal notebook or a file. It means that uh, sometimes you're going to go home the next morning, maybe while you're having coffee, you're going to review your notes, and you're going to look at them from a personal perspective, like how can I put these things into practice in my own life? What does this mean I need to do in terms of my thinking, in terms of my priorities, in terms of how I spend my time, so that there can be change? See, the whole issue in sanctification is change. Now, I know we don't like that. Now, there's different parts of the country always say that folks up there just don't like change. Change? I don't want to do that. I'm comfortable. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit is going to do if you are serious about your Christian life is He's going to push you right out of your comfort zone. So if you just like living in your comfort zone where everything's the same and everything just goes along nice and smooth, well, you're in for a rude awakening once the Holy Spirit starts using the Word of God in your life because He wants to conform you to the character of Jesus Christ. And uh, it's sort of like a sculptor taking a rough block of granite and trying to turn it into uh, Michelangelo's David. You've got a lot of rough edges so that you can look like Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's going to take you through just a boatload of situations to give you the opportunity to trust God and so the Holy Spirit can knock those rough edges off. And that's just too much for some people. They just want a Christianity that will get them comfortable, a Christianity that will make them feel good about themselves, a Christianity that will... uh, uh, help, help them improve themselves every day so that they can just name and claim all those blessings God just has for them. But they don't want to go through the difficult challenges of learning the Word, learning to think biblically, learning to analyze situations that they run into every day from a biblical framework and say, okay, where did, where did these situations occur in the Bible? Who faced similar things? Was it David? Was it, was it Daniel? Was it Joseph? Was it Abraham? How did they respond? What was going on in their life? In order to do that, you have to understand Abraham and David and all the other characters. You have to have a, a full-orbed understanding of the Old Testament so you have that as a frame of reference to go to. Well, you're not going to get it in Sunday school. You're not going to get it in church once a week. You know, At the end of 20 years, you might know who David is. You might know who Abraham is, but you're not going to be able to face crises in life and then reflect back on them and reflect on the Scriptures and on the characters of Scripture and to think critically and analytically about it. This is one of the things that we are building into the curriculum that we're developing for uh, for the prep school, for training the kids so that they can think biblically and come to know who the various characters are in Scripture and what they faced. And, and the way we've designed the, 
the uh, curriculum is so that they can cycle through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation uh, five or six times between the time they're two years old and the time they're 20 years old. And so if somebody comes in and grows up in this church over the next 20 years, they'll go through the Scriptures five or six times from beginning to end. Now, when they're two years old, it's going to be taught at a two-year-old level. And they'll just hit a few high points, and they'll start you know, being exposed to the stories and uh, basic principles and things like that. And each year it gets progressive, but it just it's going to build and build and build with an emphasis on Bible memory and an emphasis on problem solving and an emphasis on dealing with the intellectual attacks that they're going to face from peers and from professors and from third-grade teachers and fourth-grade teachers and from the uh, uh, assaults that they get from, from cartoons or the Internet or everything so that, so that they, know, they have the intellectual, spiritual ammunition to deal with these kinds of things. We have to be occupied with the message. And this is the next word that is the uh, aorist passive participle of akuo. Now, the aorist tense indicates that it's something that preceded, because it's an aorist participle, it precedes the action of the main verb. So it's what they've already heard, what they've already been taught, because they've been going to church, they've been getting instruction from the Old Testament and getting instruction on uh, related to New Testament doctrine. The uh, fact that it is a passive particle in, participle indicates that they receive the action are in a mode like you are. You're sitting there, you're listening, you're paying attention, hopefully. You're not thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not thinking about what's going to happen tonight. You're not sitting there looking at your watch surreptitiously going, 25 more minutes. You have to listen and concentrate. And people aren't taught how to do that anymore. They don't know how to come and they don't know how to take notes. They don't know how to how to focus, but if we're going to get anywhere with the ideas of Scripture, you have to listen, and it has to be consistent over weeks, months, years to transform uh, the thinking. And so we have to pay attention to the doctrine that is being taught. Now, let's talk about that term Bible doctrine for a minute. What is Bible doctrine? See, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture has been breathed out by God and it's profitable for doctrine. Now, the devil plays interesting little games with people. One of Satan's greatest ploys is to distort, dilute the vocabulary of Scripture so that people no longer understand what it means. And the word doctrine has been yanked out of context, and the way it's usually used by most people out there is that this is sort of abstract theology. Doctrine is what you get. They, they relate it to dogma, a, a technical doctrinal statement or systematic theology, and they think that, well, you know, that's just all this abstract reasoning out there. I, I need something more practical. I want something with uh, shoe leather on it. I want to be able to come to church and go home and have some principles to apply. And I usually say, mm-hmm, do you when they're there? No, they don't, but, but that's irrelevant. They just want to take pot shots and say, I want something I can take home and apply. Not that they're going to do it. And so they, by, by defining doctrine in this sort of narrow, restricted uh, way, where it just refers to sort of an uh, impractical type of uh, abstract uh, theological type of teaching, they, 
they say, no, we want something practical. And so they get away from understanding the facts and the teaching and the foundational ideas that are present in Scripture that teaches us the realities. You know, we've gone through some hard stuff in Hebrews 1. We've talked about the ascension and the session, and, and we've gone into back to Psalm 2 and Psalm uh, 110. We've gone through some difficult things to lay the foundation of who and what Jesus Christ is. But if you don't have that understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of God, then when we come to a, a, an application like we have in these four verses, it's not going to mean anything. When you divorce morality and ethics from its foundation of the realities that God teaches in the Scripture, then you end up in legalism. All I want to do is have five points on how to, how to live. Well, you don't want to understand the foundation for that. If you don't understand the foundation for that and you're just following some grocery list of things to do, you've become a Pharisee. You're just a legalist. You're no better than any, any other ethical person, but we're not in the job of producing ethical, moral people. We're in the job of producing spiritually mature people. Not that spiritually mature people are unethical or immoral, but any unbeliever can be ethical and moral. We want people who are spiritually mature, walking by the Spirit and applying the Word. So Bible doctrine is not a term that is a synonym for just theology or systematic theology. The term in the Greek comes from didaskalos, which means teaching, or in the adjectival form, didaskalia. It means teaching, and that includes everything from basics, understanding the Trinity or the hypostatic union, uh, the emphasis on person of Jesus Christ, his work, the atonement, redemption, propitiation, to more advanced concepts related to inheritance, related to dispensations, related to the ascension and session of Christ, and some of the other things that, that we studied. But in order to do that, to understand those doctrines which become the foundation for action, for thought change, for life change, you have to teach line upon line, verse upon verse, precept upon precept. It it takes time to build that reservoir of knowledge in your soul so that when you face the issues in life, you have something to draw on and you can apply it. So let's just look at some basic thoughts on what Bible doctrine is. You know, the best way to understand doctrine is how the military uses it. And that, that involves everything from what we would call theory to application, how they actually engage in, strategy, in tactics on the battlefield, how they utilize an armored vehicle, how they go through various procedures in and rearmament, how they, uh, how they go on patrol, what their formations are, how they move through the streets over in a city like Crete. All of that relates to doctrine. It may start in a think tank back here in the U.S., but it culminates and includes everything down to that individual rifleman moving on patrol, where he steps, how he looks in the buildings, what he's wearing on his person, Everything is part of the military doctrine of engagement of the enemy. And that's the same idea that we have in Scripture. Doctrine includes everything. And so the first point that we want to emphasize is that revelation from God, and that's what we're talking about here. I want you to flip back over. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. After God spoke, what's verse 2? God spoke. What do we have in uh, chapter 2, verse 1? The things we heard. What are we talking about? We're talking about the revelation from God. 
And the point is that revelation from God, whether it has to do with the genealogies of Genesis 5 or Matthew 1 or some of the lengthy genealogies in First Chronicles, everything is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine. And there's a progression in that verse in 1 Timothy 3. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's the application. But it starts with, that, with teaching, and teaching relates to every single subject in life. And point number one, revelation from God is never to be isolated from a mandate to change our thinking, our lifestyle, our thoughts, our speech, or our deeds. It's not just a, a class to stimulate your intellect. Now, there's going to be a tremendous amount of intellectual stimulation in studying the Word because it addresses every issue and every circumstance and every intellectual discipline that we can come up with. It is the foundation for everything. But you, it's never just abstract and divorced from life in some sense. Now, the trouble is some guys never understood that who come out of seminary, and so when they teach doctrine, it just sounds like just this abstract almost philosophy that really doesn't, it's never connected to how we think or how we live on a day-to-day basis. So that's my first point. Revelation from God is never to be isolated from a mandate to change our thinking, lifestyle, thoughts, or deeds. It's all drives to change. That's Romans 12, too, to exchange the cosmic thinking in our soul for that which is uh, in the divine viewpoint, which is in the Word of God. It always drives toward change, which is the second point. Change doesn't necessarily mean external change, but most importantly, internal change, which then may impact external action. See, see, change is supposed to come from the inside out, not the outside in. The legalist starts changing you from the outside in. Somebody comes in here, and they, it's obvious they uh, haven't ever been inside of a church before, and you listen to things that they say, and you listen to their opinions on certain things in life, and it's obvious they, they don't know anything about what the Word of God says. Well, you don't come along and say, well, you've got to stop doing this and you've got to start doing this and impose an external standard on them. That's superficial and it doesn't last. You can't have somebody come in and then just say, okay, well, you know, quit doing that, quit doing this, start doing this. And that's typical of most churches. You teach the Word. Under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, if they're positive to the Word, they're going to learn it. And God the Holy Spirit is going to take His Word, and He's the change agent. And it may take time. He's going to deal with different people in different ways. You know, some of you are still looking at your life and saying, I've been struggling with this particular sin or this issue since, since I was 15 years old. And somebody else has faced that, and the Lord's really dealt with them on that since they were about 30. And see, the Holy Spirit deals with everybody in different ways, different times, And so you can't sit across the church and say, you know, that person over there really needs to get a handle on their anger or their gossip or whatever it is that that bothers you. God the Holy Spirit will eventually take care of it as long as they sit and learn the Word. And then it comes from that solid spiritual dynamic produced by the Holy Spirit and not some external legalistic straitjacket. But the focus is change. That's what God the Holy Spirit is doing. He's changing us. 
Point number three refers to Romans 12:2, which I've cited already. Do not be conformed to this world. And the word there for world is in cosmos, it's ionos, indicating the spirit of the age, what the, what the Germans call the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times. And it's a subcategory of cosmic thinking. It's the thinking that's going on around us in our culture of the day, whatever that is, whether it's a 1940s culture, a 1960s culture. And, you know, if you don't remember the if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Right. Uh, whether it's an 80s culture, whatever it is, every one of us grew up in certain times that tremendously influenced us. And the thing is, most of us don't realize how we were influenced by that zeitgeist in the generation uh, where we grew up. And that's why your, your parents like certain kinds of movies, and they, um, they like to read certain kinds of books, and they like to listen to certain kinds of music, and you just don't get into their music or their art or whatever it may be, and then you look at your children, my, my, you don't understand at all why they listen to what they listen to, and you don't know why they dress the way they do or why they're getting tattoos and getting pierced and all this other stuff. And it all flows out of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. And so if you're going to understand cosmic thinking, you have to do some real digging. And I'm working on a series I probably won't get to till next spring or summer, and we're going to study world, worldliness, understanding your times. And the real challenge there is that if you're going to understand what's going on today, you have to understand postmodernism. And if you want to understand postmodernism, you have to understand existentialism. And to understand that, you've got to understand Hegelian idealism. And if you want to understand Hegelian idealism, you've got to understand the Kantian uh, Copernican revolution in philosophy. And to understand that, you have to understand Hume. And to understand Hume, you have to understand the Enlightenment uh, empiricists like uh, Locke. And to understand them, they were a reaction to Descartes. And the Enlightenment's a reaction to the Middle Ages. And if you are going to understand the Middle Ages, where they tried to merge Greek philosophy with theology, you have to understand Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle. But they, in turn, were a reaction and a development from the pre-Socratics. And the pre-Socratics were a uh, development or reaction to the mythic, animistic, nature, uh, fertility religions of the uh, of the. Uh, early civilizations. And to understand that, you've got to understand Genesis 3. And to understand Genesis 3, you've got to understand Genesis 2. So you start there and you get the whole history of ideas, but you have to do that to say anything substantival about how you think and what you think. And I've gone through this enough to where I know that if I sit down and start talking to you about what's going on today in the world in terms of cosmic thinking, and you don't set it up with all the other stuff, you're not going to have a clue and you're just going to think it's all my opinion. So we're going to get into this, and we'll cover all that in about 15 or 16 weeks, and it'll blow your socks off because what happens is we just don't think objectively about our own thinking, and we don't see how it's been influenced by the, the cultural air that we breathe. So it's going to take a lot of time to develop it, and I'm working on that now. So that's just a preview of coming attractions. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to this age, to the spirit of the age. If you don't know the characteristics of the spirit of the age, how do you know you're not being conformed to it? You don't. 
Oh, wait a minute, that's, that's just such abstract stuff. Let me find out how to go home and have a happy marriage. Well, the reason you don't have a happy marriage is because you're thinking in a worldly viewpoint. And you're thinking about the role of men and women in ways that have been influenced by the cosmic system, and you don't even know it because it just was instilled in you as you grew up in this culture. So it's ultimately the most practical thing you can do. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renovation of your mind. Doctrine affects every dimension of human learning. It affects the sciences to the arts. It affects your view of history to geology, from music to theater to literature. Every dimension of life is affected by Bible doctrine. And you don't get there unless you're spending hours and hours and hours thinking about these things. And that's what produced the high points of Christian culture in various stages of history because you had large numbers of believers and large numbers of pastors and theology professors who were thinking about these things. I mean, you go back to the period after the Reformation and you had pastors who were also uh, had hobbies in uh, the natural sciences and they were categorizing and classifying uh, various animals and species and they did all of this on the side. You have people like uh, Isaac Newton. And everybody knows who Isaac Newton was, and he formulated the law of gravity. But do you know that Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible, and he wrote more commentaries on the Bible, and wrote more about theology than he did about science? And that's, the, that's what laid the foundation for modern culture, is people who let their thinking be radically transformed by the Word of God, and they didn't just show up at church on Sunday and go home after 30 minutes and say, wasn't that great, what good entertainment. Couldn't those people sing? I just feel so good. I'm going to wake up with a smile every morning. But that's what we have today, is a simpering, superficial, sentimental Christianity that will never change the individual, much less the culture. And yet they talk about it all the time, but they don't have a clue how it happens because it only happens when you have a profound understanding of the Scripture. Fourth thing, when you get into the Word of God, it's going to change how you relate to other people. All of a sudden you realize that that people are sinners. You know, if you're operating on a typical human viewpoint view of people, you think everybody's basically good. Then you get into the Bible, you find out everybody's basically evil, including your husband or your wife or your children, and that's always a rude awakening, or your parents, but that's no surprise, especially if you're over 13. You realize all these things. People are sinners, and so we have to deal with them as sinners. And rule number one in life is people are people, and rule number two is people are sinners, and rule number three is look at rule number one. And that's the only way we're going to get through life is if we understand what the Bible says about people so that we can have serious, significant relationships as God designed. Fifth, it changes all the social structures. We live in an era where we we are so immersed in paganism today that people are debating over the basic foundations of society. Nobody today uh, really believes in personal responsibility. It's genetic. It's, it's not uh, nurture, it's nature. So they were just born that way. And we're going to have to get into some of those issues in Genesis coming up as we address the issue of the Sodomites in Sodom. But for the meantime, we see that as we study the Word, it forces us to understand the foundation, foundational reality of the divine institutions. 
First of all, God established human responsibility and accountability. And as a corollary to that, we have work and labor. And that is grounded at the beginning before the fall. There was work in the, in the Garden of Eden. It was not toilsome labor, but there were responsibilities and labor. They had to watch over the garden. They had to tend the garden. Then we have marriage. And family, the Word of God will transform your understanding of, of a personal responsibility. You get a hold of personal responsibility in marriage, things change. You're not blaming your wife for everything or your husband for everything. All of a sudden, you have to realize you have to take accountability for your own bad decisions. And that's going to change things in the marriage. And then uh, you have family and the responsibilities of parents, the responsibilities of the husband and the wife and the kids. And eventually it affects the fourth and fifth divine institutions in terms of government and law and politics and internationalism and globalism. And it's going to give you a perspective of history so that you can understand what's going on today in light of the trends of history. So when you learn doctrine, it affects your viewpoint on every issue in life. Sixth thing about doctrine. Doctrine gives you the understanding of reality as God defines it. See, when you're born as a fallen sinner, your inclination as a sinner is to define reality on your own terms because it's all about you. And if you don't believe that, just look at some little baby. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll find a, a, a three-month-old to give you for a while, and you can keep it till it's two, and you'll discover that the world revolves around them, and it revolved around you, and that's the first thing you learned when you were about two months old, is that everything's about you, and when you cry, you get attention, and when you do this thing or another thing, you get attention, and so you're going to start learning how to manipulate your environment because it's all about you, and you define reality on your terms. But then the Word of God comes along and tells you, no, it's not all about you. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now you trust Christ as your Savior, and you don't realize when you get saved what's involved. And then the Holy Spirit starts getting a hold of you and taking you through the growth process. And sometimes we stop and we think, now, did I really want to get involved in the intensified stage of the angelic conflict? Did I really want to go in through this testing like this? Is this what I signed on for? No, the guy said, if you trust Christ, you'll have a happy, meaningful life. Well... I'm not so sure this is happy and meaningful right now. But doctrine gives you the understanding of reality as God defines it and the rules for operating in a God-created but presently Satan-dominated world. We live in a fallen world with fallen people, and that's reality. And so the Bible is going to give us the framework for handling that, and that comes from Bible doctrine. And the seventh point and final point, then it... Doctrine moves into your thought life, teaches you how to handle every situation in life. And we face all kinds of tests. We face people tests, and we face system tests, and we face health tests, and we face problems in marriages and uh, problems in corporations and financial tests. And yet it's the Word of God that gives us the principles so that we can surround and envelop all of those problems with the truth of God's Word, and when we do that, we have stability and we have peace and we have happiness that surpasses all comprehension because our thinking is aligned to reality. We know what God's doing. We know God's in control. And no matter what happens, we can relax and trust God. And it's all part of that 
growth process. So the writer of Hebrews says, therefore, because of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and because of his superiority in the universe right now, we must give the closest attention, the closest scrutiny to the things that we have heard, to the doctrine that has been communicated to us. And then we have a warning. And this is translated lest in uh, the New King James Version, and it's a translation of the Greek word may pote. It's a compound verb, may indicating a negative, and pote indicating ever or time. It's a temporal conjunction. And so it indicates that never, literally, that we might never drift away. Our lest we seems a little soft and wimpy to us, but it's a very strong statement. We must pay attention or else we will drift away. And so it should be translated, therefore, it is necessary for us to pay the closest attention to keep anchored to the things that we have heard so that we might not ever. What's the key is staying anchored to the Word of God. That is the anchor of our soul that gives us the stability that we need so that we might not ever, what? Drift away. And here's the verb, parareo. It's an aorist passage subjunctive, and the the mepote with the subjunctive indicates that, that purpose. And it is a word that means to slip anchor. And it's not a word that indicates something that happens quickly or instantly. It's a gradual process. And uh, all of a sudden, we just gradually see that line slip overboard. And next thing you know, you're drifting on the current and the tides of worldly thinking. And you wake up one day in the morning, and your your ship has just been pushed around the, the uh, point, And you don't even know where you are. You wake up in the morning, and you're on board the ship. And all you see is water everywhere, and you know you're in trouble. And that happens so easily in our lives, that we start making decisions, little decisions. They don't seem to matter much. They're just little decisions, and they accumulate over time so that one day we wake up and we realize, how did I get so messed up in my spiritual life? And we don't know how it happened, but it was gradual, just one little move at a time. And it happens differently at different stages in life. It happens, first of all, when you first leave home. And those of you who are uh, teenagers, when you're young and you leave home, uh, you, you've had the opportunity to go to class, go to church with your parents, but now it's your decision. You're off at college, and there's a lot of things going on. You have social life and social pressures, and you have academic life, and sometimes you just want to sleep late on Sunday morning because you stayed up too late on Saturday night, and you have to learn to discipline your nightlife and your partying on Saturday night so that you can go to class on Sunday morning. But then, then you have the academic rigors all through the week. And, all, and if you work while you're going to school, you have those extra obligations. And it's easy to say, you know, I'm just too tired. I'm not going to make it to, to, to class tonight. And I'm not going to be there on Sunday. And then after a year or two at school, you're not going to church anywhere. And you're constantly being pelted with human viewpoint. Christian principles are being attacked day in and day out in the, in the university classroom. And next thing you know, your life isn't any different from the unbeliever living in the dorm room next to you. And then when you graduate from 
from university, you think, golly, I'll, I'll, I'll get back. I know there's some problems. I'm not as happy or stable as I was when I was in high school and with, with the Lord and, and putting doctrine first. But now you have a job, and they're expecting you to be at work 50, 60 hours a week, and you have to drive across town and fight traffic. And you know, I'm just too tired to go to Bible class at night and to concentrate, and I sit in the back row and I fall asleep. So I'm not going to go. I'll go on Sunday. And then Sunday comes, and you had a chance to go out of town and, and do, go camping with friends, or you had a chance to go out partying the night before, and it's just too hard to get up and go to church at uh, 10.30 on Sunday morning. That's why it's good that we don't have Sunday morning. So you all get to party late on Saturday and, and just sleep all day and wake up and come to church at 6.30 on Sunday night. But you, you have another major test when you are in your 20s, and it has to do with how are you going to learn to balance priorities in your life in relationship to, to money, to material things, to your job, your career, and to your spiritual life. But when you're 20s, you think, I can put it off. I've still got lots of time. I'll do it when I get married. And then you get married, but now you want to have a lot of fun and you want to travel, and you're, now you've got to deal with two sin natures living under the same roof. And you don't quite know how to do that. And so uh, you didn't make doctrine the priority when you got married. So you've got somebody who really doesn't care. Yeah, you get, they were saved, but they don't care about spiritual things. And they were probably, uh, uh, you know, some other brand of Christian. And they didn't care too much about the infallibility of Scripture in their life. And so now there are these tensions. I tell you, I can't believe how many times over the years I've seen parents who've let their kids date unbelievers or believers who were just uh, falling apart in their Christian life, and then they wonder why they got married to that individual, and now they're married to some man or some woman who just destroys them spiritually because of the difficulties there. And then they have kids, and that's the next stage. And I've watched this over the years. As soon as a couple gets married and they start having babies, they disappear. And that's a real challenge for a lot of young couples is how am I going to manage the time when I've got this screaming infant that keeps me up all night and then I want to fall asleep in church and I've got to carry you know, ten bags of stuff with me everywhere I go. And some people manage to get organized about it and other people, they don't get organized with the babies until the babies are in high school. And you don't see them in church, you know, from the time they, oh, we'll be there next Sunday. But by the time they get all the bags packed and the diaper bags packed and everything else, church is over with and they're in the evening service. And then you get a little later on in life. And, and there's other things. There's always issues in life that are going to keep you from being in class studying the Word. And the issue is your volition. And if you blame your circumstances, work, whatever it is, school, whatever it is, if you're blaming those circumstances, then you are... are have created a recipe for spiritual disaster because the issue ultimately is when it's over with, and it may be next week, it may be, we never know when the Lord's going to take us home. It may be next year, it may be ten years from now. But do we want to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, or are you just going to be glad you're not in hell? And that's what this writer is challenging us with. Therefore, we must give the highest possible priority to give the closest attention to the things we have heard, to the doctrine we studied, concentrate on it, or else we will be cast adrift on the currents of cosmic thinking and we will destroy our temporal impact 
and long-range impact. And then he gives us an illustration in verse 2, going back to the giving of the Mosaic Law, which we'll get to next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word and to recognize the seriousness of, of the task of studying your word and learning to think biblically so that we can have an impact and, and, and the, the environment around us based on the truth of your word. But most importantly, we need to live our lives to honor you, to glorify you, and that occurs only when we make the study of your word the highest priority. Challenges these with these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.